Well, good morning. This is attorney Stephen Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO, answering your questions, giving out advice. And of course, we are on the air live today, as always. If you're tuning into the show, you're wondering what we do here every week. We're here every week to help give you information, keep you abreast of recent developments in the law, and hopefully guide you through the maze that is the law today. And I find that most of the time it's dealing with stress of a issue that you just don't know what the outcome is going to be, or perhaps you're in the middle of a, a ruckus lawsuit or something along those lines, and you really don't understand the process. You know, understanding how things work in the legal system is sort of like understanding how things work if you have to go in for surgery or if you have to go in for a uh, procedure, a medical procedure, or perhaps if you're dealing with an IRS audit. These are all issues that you have to deal with on a regular basis, and and sometimes they're stressful if you don't understand how it is that it's one thing interplays with another. So the reality here is that uh, this is your chance. I'm here live every week. I'm only here for an hour, and we do have a hard cutoff today because the uh, Patriots are playing, and we go right up to 9.57, and then we're off the air until next week. Of course, you can always reach me at my office, and I do try to return calls every day before I leave my work, or you can reach me through my website at spllaw.com. But right now, the number here is 401-438-9776. And so what types of questions did I get this week? And uh, what type of issues are people dealing with in uh, different areas of the law? And, you know, there's a lot of different types of cases that percolate and a lot of different types of areas of the law that interplay with one another. And I, I just want to talk about this one question that came up because I thought this was pretty interesting. And I, I think it has a, a bearing on, you know, having a will and not having a will. And so this particular individual was married for a second time. Okay. Now, his spouse passed away, and they were married for about 30 years. She had two of her own children. He had one child. Now, they did have beneficiary designations on some accounts. So when you name a beneficiary on a bank account, a life insurance, an IRA, a 401k, it goes to that person. But she had other accounts that did not have beneficiary designations. And those other accounts now have to go through probate. And my client was relying, they, they both thought that they had named each other as beneficiary in all of their accounts. And my client is really relying on the fact that he's entitled to inherit those accounts. Now, those other accounts are investment accounts that total roughly $300,000. And the idea was that, you know, upon one of them passing, the other one would be able to pay off their mortgage and stay in their home. And now the question becomes, what happens in probate? Did she have a will? No, she didn't have a will. And so the question becomes, well, who gets what when you don't have a will and you have children from a different marriage? And the reality is, the assets essentially get divided between the spouse, and there's a little bit more to it, but for rough take between the spouse and the surviving heirs at law. And depending on the value of the assets, the children would end up with significantly more than the spouse. 
And so he's concerned now because he really doesn't have a relationship with their children. And if we go through the probate court process, would they be willing to waive or do you think they're going to want the money? Most likely because she died without a will, they're going to want the money. Now, what would have happened if she had a will? Well, if she had a will and she said everything goes to my spouse, her children still get notice of a probate. All right. So we still have to do the probate and they still get notice and they may have the right to contest. But the will would be clear that anything that went through the probate went to the spouse. And so here we have an example of just unintended consequences where we have a spouse now who inherited a small amount from his his wife. Um, they own the house jointly. So he became the owner of the house. And um, now there's this is $300,000 floating out there to be determined by state law as to who gets what and that's that's pretty scary stuff so you know the idea here is that listen even if you just have a simple will that says everything goes to my spouse or maybe she wanted it to go to her children we don't know because she didn't put anything in writing and you know they never thought about this they thought that they had all their beneficiaries updated so just a just a cautionary tale to say that you know it's better to express your intentions in writing and to say whatever it is that you wanted to say, rather than have a situation like this, where essentially the state's going to be making the decisions for you. And there could be arguing and there could be contests, and I'm sure they're going to get lawyers involved and it's going to be expensive. And so that probably could have been avoided with something in writing, or even if she had updated her beneficiary designations. I am uh, attorney Stephen Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. Of course, I'm licensed in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. And now we also have a license in Connecticut as my daughter has passed the Connecticut bar exam and uh, is sworn in. And so she's officially a Connecticut attorney and soon to be a Rhode Island and Massachusetts attorney as well, just like her dad. So uh, we'll be able to service everybody. So that's that's, just, that's great news for all the listeners out there who call me and say, you know, Stephen, uh, can you handle this closing for me in Connecticut or can you do this for me? Whatever it might be. And now we're able to. So that's just uh, great news. Now we do have callers on the line and we have Gary from Tiverton on the line. Hi, Gary. Yes, can you hear me? I can hear you, Gary. Okay. Uh, my mother lives in Tiverton, has is surrounded by woods with two neighbors that love trees, and uh, they won't trim the trees, and when they fall down, they go into her yard and threaten her house. Is there any, is, does she have to pay for the removal, and is there some way to put these people on notice that uh, would give her less, uh, you know, obligated to pay for any damages. How many times have the trees fallen into her property that she had to pay? Uh, at least three. Wow. Okay. So she, technically, I, I, uh, go ahead. technically, if trees are overhanging your property line, you see, when you have a property line, you own from the property line down into the ground, and then you own from the property line up to the sky. So you can prune any piece of pro any piece of tree that's overhanging your property line, first of all. Now, if a tree falls onto her property, okay, and it was diseased, technically it's the other person's responsibility to pay for the removal. 
However, there are, and sometimes the insurance will cover it. Now, there are times when insurance won't cover it, and they'll say it's an act of God that that tree fell. But still, you're not allowed to dispose of your uh, refuse onto somebody else's property. So ultimately, the neighbor should be responsible to be paying for the removal of these trees. And um, especially if they're diseased or they're continually, it's continuing a nuisance. Now, your mom could always you know, go to court or something along those lines and say, you know, it's created a nuisance and we want uh, them to be restrained and enjoined to uh, to affirmatively, basically uh, cut their diseased trees so they don't fall on our property. But I'm sure she doesn't want to go through that uh, litigation and time and expense. And uh, uh, let me ask you this, Gary, have you had a chance to go knock on the door and say, you know, look, this has happened three times. We'd appreciate it if you could take down some of these trees before they fall on my mother's property again. She's been over there, and they gave kind of a negative response, and uh, so she hasn't gone back. But my thing, I'm, I live in Florida most of the time, and if there's a tree that's very hazardous, you can put them on notice by giving them a uh, letter identifying that, you know, you're not going to take responsibility if that tree falls on your property. I don't know if that holds water in, in Rhode Island, though. Well, yes, but still, you still have to, you still then have to enforce it. So you're still going to pay to have that tree removed, and then you'd have to go to court to enforce reimbursement or recoupment of your loss, which is the cost of the, of the tree removal. So you ultimately, wherever you end up, you end up in the same place. There's no automatic uh, process to say that you paid for the tree, now you get to maybe put a lien on their house or something like that. It's it's not automatic like that. And and that's why I was okay. saying maybe maybe when you're back up from Florida, maybe one of these times when you come up, um, you know, it might be worth you going over as a son to say, you know, geez, you know, we've had to deal with this issue three times. It's cost my mom, you know, three thousand dollars to remove these trees. Some of them are dying. Is there a chance that you could remove the dying trees before they fall on our property again? And, um, you know, see what if, if they have a negative response, you can always go the legal route that you certainly can. And you probably would start with a letter stating or making a demand that they remove any diseased trees that uh, potentially could harm your property. You may want to have a a person who's an arborist go out to that property and actually identify. They can pin the trees by marking them with uh, red or uh, pink spray paint, uh, the trees that are diseased and that should be removed. Um, you know, th those are all steps that you can take. And unfortunately, there's no self-affecting statute like you're talking about in Florida. Now, could she just hire a tree company to go cut the trees down if they're diseased? Yeah, and could they say that well, she trespassed on her property and open up a different type of situation? Possibly, Gary. You know, so yeah. it's a sticky it's a sticky widget with trees in Rhode Island and Mass anywhere in New England. It, it's the same issue, folks. You know, ordinarily, sometimes they get so frustrated that you go the route of sending the demand letter and then filing an action in court to say. I want you to stop. Uh, I want you to remove those diseased trees because it's creating a nuisance on my property and it's costing me money. And that's, you know, then that, now you're in the court between neighbors. And you know, I find that 
nothing good really happens from that. I mean, you will probably win in that case, Gary, but you know how it goes from there. But if they're already taking a negative view, it can't get any worse than I suppose than what she's already dealing with. All right, well, thank you very much, sir. All right, Gary, excellent question. Thank you for calling in today. Of course, this is attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. Tiffany's telling me we have to go to break. Absolutely must go to break. And uh, we're going to go to break right now. So we'll be back in just a Former Navy SEAL Mike Ritland keeps it real on the Mike Drop Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Rudy Reyes. The ethics of martial arts is why I joined the Marine Corps. I never thought I was going to join the military because I'd been around so much gun violence. And I wanted to be the antithesis of that. I loved fighting hand-to-hand. It's fair. You don't have to kill your opponent. You can beat them with ability and skill. Mike Drop. Raw, unfiltered, intellectually sound, wherever you listen. Everybody's situation is different. Everybody's case is different. Trust me, you may be thinking your case is similar to somebody else's, but every case is different based on the facts. And uh, the facts could be slightly different from one case to the other. So every single case needs its own independent evaluation. You can never put everybody in a box. And that's why I say... You know, you, you sometimes if you want to go to a, a big box store, right, you're going to buy a ginormous box of ketchup. And, and the analogy here is that uh, sometimes when you're a client with a big box firm, I suppose, you're putting yourself into that box as if you're all the same ingredients as all the other bags of ketchup. And th- that's not the case. You may be a low sodium ketchup or a sugar free ketchup. So, you know, your situation is always different than somebody else's and you have to be treated that way. And you have to understand that your case is needs to be evaluated based on that. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's what, you know, if you go see a doctor who's been practicing, maybe they've been practicing um, hip surgery, or maybe they've been practicing um, orthopedics for 26 years they're going to be able to understand your situation is going to be different than the last person they just met with. And that's the idea. And that's what we're doing here every week for you. Uh, we do have another caller on the line. We have Mark from Woonsocket with a trust fund question. Hi, Mark. You're on the air with Stephen. How can I help you today? Hi, Stephen. Um, yeah, um, my wife and I, uh, four or five years ago, uh, set up a will with you. And um, we're at the stage of our life we my wife just retired in June. I retired the past June. Um, so we're thinking about how do we protect our assets. And um, I would like to come in and see you, but I wanted to ask you, is there anything I should be thinking about or preparing in order to get some sort of a trust? I'm not even sure hmm. how all that works, but you're the boss. Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. And um, a lot of times I'll tell folks, uh your estate or what you plan on leaving somebody depends on a variety of factors, right? You know, are you married? Uh, is it a first marriage, a second marriage? How many children do you have or do you not have children? And do you, are you going to be leaving charitable gifts? Um, now, whenever you name a beneficiary on an account, you understand that that person or that entity will be receiving that money. Um, or if you hold something jointly with somebody, that person will be receiving that. So ordinarily, what we're planning for is for the second to die. What happens when both of you aren't here? And the idea is that we want to, number one, avoid probate. 
because we don't want to have to have your beneficiaries, your children, your grandchildren, or or charitable gifts have to languish in probate court for six months, nine months before something is resolved. And the second issue is um, sometimes we're talking about Medicaid planning, where we're saying maybe your house is worth $600,000 and there's no mortgage on it. Or maybe you own two properties with no mortgages or very small, like a home equity line of credit. And the concern is that should you or your spouse need long-term care services, how is that going to affect your estate? So a lot of times, Mark, when I talk to folks, I I kind of explain it like this. And um, I, I don't mean to go into a lot here, but there's... The, I look at I look at estate planning in three different categories when we're talking about the, uh, the so-called nursing home protection. All right, so we have a category of of a population who maybe weren't um, so fortunate, right? And they need care, so they're going to get care. They're going to get Medicaid, so that they can go and get long-term care services. Then we have a portion of our population who maybe um, have done very well, it's been very successful at their job, or maybe inherited property or um, different types of things like that. And they're very well off. And let's say their estates are maybe two, three, four million dollars. And most likely they're going to privately pay for themselves whatever they end up doing, because they're going to make sure if they're paying for it, either they're going to stay home as long as they can, or they're just going to pay for their care um, wherever they seem fit, you know, if whatever the cost, then you have kind of everybody in the middle. And this is, I consider this like 75% of the population. This is folks who have maybe, you know, squirreled away some money for savings, maybe paid off your mortgage, maybe saved uh, some additional money for, you know, maybe your grandchildren or things like that, or whatever you're thinking. And you go and you need long-term care services. So what happens next? Well, the Medicaid office is going to first evaluate all of your assets, and they're going to consider how much assets you have in your name. And if you have more than $4,000 of cash assets, they're going to tell you that you have to spend that down. So first that goes. Then as the case progresses, generally what will happen is upon the second to pass away, so once your other spouse passes away, they'll say, okay, now that we're going through this probate process, we're going to put a lien on your home, which means that if your children sell your house, we have to get paid back all the money that we paid for you through the Medicaid services. And so yep. a lot of times you see that people lose a lot. Um, and that this is that middle group. And so I would say that's about 75% of the population there, or 70% in that middle who really get pinched because of that. So Medicaid planning and probate avoidance planning is really good. So what do you need to have an idea of? You should have an idea of what are your assets? Where are they held? Um, what are your goals? Who you do you think yep. your beneficiaries would be? Who would be in charge when you're not here? And those are some very yep. basic things that you know, you can think about and put together. And of course, if we meet Mark, we could talk a little bit more about that. But that's the idea yeah. of what do you really need? And of course, if you have any documents that were prepared previously, 
you'd want to bring them in just so we can review those documents and see what types of changes you want to make. Does that help you? Okay, sounds yeah, it sounds good. Uh, so we're in that seventy-five percent yep. um, population. Um, we have a house. The mortgage is paid. We both have pensions. We both uh, we we have some annuities and some savings. We're in pretty darn good shape. But okay. you know, who knows? I'm sixty-six. My wife is sixty-three. Who knows what the future holds? I just want to protect what assets I have. Right. And um, because you have the will, I would you know I. I yeah. I'd rather sit with somebody who has both. Well, that's a, and it's a good part. question, too, for everybody listening, too. It's a really good question. So, yeah, so you can give me a call at my office okay. uh, anytime, make an appointment to come in and see me again. It'd be a pleasure. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Thanks for calling in today, Mark. Good question. Excellent question. And I mean to go a little bit too long winded on that one, but, you know, that's how I classify when I'm thinking about uh, long-term care planning and thinking about how to protect certain things. And there are other strategies that we employ. For example, sometimes if we're really close to going into needing a nursing home or something like that, we can do some a sale of the house for fair market value to a family member. Uh, we can structure, uh, we can do certain types of deeds that can be structured to protect the property last minute. So there's a lot of emergency Medicaid planning that I do too, where we try to, um, in an emergency fashion, still allow you to be eligible for Medicaid, but on the flip side of it, still try to protect something. This is attorney Steve LeVake, your host of Legal Tips. We're heading into the middle of the road break. And uh, when we come back, I'm going to get to some more questions. We'll be back in just a minute. This is attorney Steve LeVake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. And uh, so, you know, I guess some really um, good questions. I mean, a lot of folks will call me and I'll ask sometimes, you mind if I use this on the air? And of course, I get permission first before I use that uh, an issue on the air. But um, this question came to me, uh, a person's going through a divorce and this person's husband was awarded a vehicle in the divorce, which was titled in the wife's name. Now, they've gone to court, and they put their divorce through, and the judge accepted it. And now in Rhode Island, there's a 90-day cooling-off period. So you have to wait 90 days before your divorce judgment becomes final. So um, husband's driving the vehicle. So he she, she signs the title, right? but he hasn't registered in his name yet. He's driving the vehicle. He gets in a car accident. A car is totaled. So now husband's lawyer says to wife, because you didn't have full coverage on the vehicle collision, you have to buy my client a car. And that's what, that's what brought her in to see me because, um, I guess there's been some miscommunication between her and her attorney, some issues percolating there, I guess, and some, some other problems that were have come to light. And so the question becomes, if he was awarded the car, but hasn't registered it in his name yet and gets in a car accident and totals the vehicle, is it her fault that she didn't have collision? And therefore, she's responsible to buy him another car. Well, apparently, there's a motion pending in court. 
saying that uh, they want her to pay for a vehicle because she failed to have proper coverage. And, um, you know, I think that that is a misplaced motion. And I can't imagine the family court judge saying in this situation whether or not she had an insurance or didn't have insurance at all doesn't matter because he was responsible for the accidents. He has to take responsibility for his own actions. In other words, was she still responsible to insure that vehicle to for collision coverage for him to drive it? I think that would be an unfair burden. Now, it makes sense on the other side of it, if you think about it, but he had possession of the vehicle. So my take on it, my answer is this. If, she, if he was awarded the vehicle in the divorce, but she was still driving it and she totals it and doesn't have collision, then I think she, he's entitled to a vehicle, right? That's what the divorce decree says. But if he has the keys to the vehicle and he's driving it and he totals it, does he have the right now to go back against her? And I would say no. So obviously she's going to litigate this issue. Obviously she came in to see me and we're going to be preparing objections and things along those lines. But sometimes I look at things with the question of there's a legal side of it, right? Where we just kind of went through that little legal analysis, but there's also the common sense side of it that would say, what would common sense say? A lot of times the law follows common sense. A lot of times the law mirror images what would make common sense to somebody. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the law deviates from what is common sense. And in that sense to provide a remedy. So I don't think that once the, once the keys were handed over and he took possession and believe it or not, that old saying, possession is nine tenths of the law really, really applies in most circumstances. He had possession. He had control of the vehicle. He could have registered in his name before he drove it. He could have obtained insurance on his own. So I think that we have a very good argument, but apparently this, um, this car was a fairly expensive car. So he's asking for reimbursement of something like $45,000. So She's got to fight it. She's got to. She's got to litigate this issue. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe an issue of first impression with the court. I did some research, and I haven't been able to find anything concerning this very specific issue. What happens to an asset post divorce, post surrender of that asset? And I think I'm right on this issue. So I mean, we'll see. You know, if if I make it up to the Supreme Court again on this issue. I'll let you know, but I think we're probably going to prevail in family court on this uh, litigation issue. Uh, we do have a caller online. We have Tom from Pawtucket. Hi, Tom. You're on the air with Stephen. Good morning, Stephen. Listen, my ultimate goal is to avoid probate under all costs. I have three assets, a home with a mortgage, but it's already on an irrevocable trust, the other two assets, considerably less in value, is a pickup truck and a travel trailer camper. When I pass away, of course, they would have to normally go to probate to be able to sell both of those vehicles. Well, My Tom, question, what is the value of those vehicles? Oh, uh, 10000 each. Okay. So just so everybody knows, 
Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Connecticut, all have what's called an expedited probate process. If the value in Rhode Island of whatever your estate is, is less than $15,000, your ears at law can file your will and go to probate. And it usually takes about 30 days and it's an expedited probate process so that most of the time cars can be transferred or sold. But you had an idea to even avoid that. What's your idea? All right. Since no money is owed on either one of them, pre-sign both titles as the seller and pre-sign two bills of sale, leaving the buyer and gates blank. Then giving both the titles and the bills of sale to the person in charge of my will and trust. So they can, upon my death, sell both of my other assets with my signature on them. Hmm. So that's, that's a fairly interesting question. And, and let me give you an example of, of another question that you, that this comes up. Sometimes folks will come to me and they'll say, you know, Stephen, um, I want to sign a deed today, putting my son's name on the deed but I don't want to record it. I don't want it to be effective. So what happens is what we'll do is we'll have a deed held in escrow. So they'll come in and sign the deed saying, I hereby give my property to my son. Now, once that deed is signed and notarized, it's a legal instrument. However, it does not take effect to third parties because it's not recorded in town hall. So essentially what would happen is if this person were to die in some tragic way, your escrow agent would take that deed and record it in town hall. Now it's effective to all third parties. And yes, I've even had situations where we were in the middle of a closing and the seller signed the documents and then the seller died. And that deed is still legally effective to transfer title to the new buyer. But you're doing something slightly different. It's essentially the same thing. You're signing a document to transfer a title, but you're not transferring it to anybody. So you want to, in other words, so it's an incomplete gift. So I don't know. I don't know if, in fact, that transfer of title would be accepted because it's not transferred to anybody. I suppose if you wanted to do something similar to that, you could transfer the title or sign the documents to have a transfer of title, sort of like I described the deed in escrow, to your trust. And then upon your passing, your trustee can take those transfer documents and register the vehicle to the trust and then sell it. Because now it's a complete gift, as opposed to okay. leaving it blank um, because it, then if it's blank, you haven't made a gift of anything. You've only signed a document and your executor or your trustee or whoever's in charge would then have to present a document that may not be truthful to a governmental agency. So I would say if you wanted to do something deed in escrow, as I just explained it to you, then do it to your trust 
That way it's effective, but it's not effective until it actually gets recorded and it can be recorded after your death. Do you understand the, the difference? With that, Steve. Yeah, Steve, the problem with that is that starts the trust all over again. And I'm not willing to waste the five years and start all over again. And the value isn't high enough to start a separate trust. Right. Is the benef is the beneficiary of your trust one of your children? The beneficiary will be all three of my children, where my sister, who is in charge, sells everything and divides the money evenly amongst the three children. Okay. Well, I mean, you could always sign it to your sister, put her on there, and tell her that the intention is that it goes to your three kids, you know, and hope she does that when you're not here, I suppose, if you wanted to go that route. But it may be a situation where your kids could just do a small estate probate if they're only valued at 20000 now. And then, you know, in a few more years, 10, 20 more years when you're no longer here, they may only be valued at 10000 and it might not be an issue. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's what I'll do then. I'll do everything to my sister because she knows she's she knows exactly what I want done. So that's not a yep. problem. I didn't even think so of it. So it's sort of be like, like we just described, Tom, where we're doing a deed transfer and escrow right pending a certain event which would be your death that's perfect All thank right, you Tom. steve yeah sure 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 raise, raise very interesting questions here uh very good question about that type of situation and um you know the number here is 401-438-9776 401-438-9776 this is attorney steve levake your host of legal tips on wpro we we're just hearing about a christmas commercial oh my goodness we're steamrolling right into the holidays this year and um i was thinking about one year oh my goodness it had to be maybe 15 20 years ago i um Instead of buying uh, presents for everybody for Christmas, I said, well, the uh, I think it was the Mannheim Steamrollers were coming to the Civic Center. And Buddy Cianci was going to read the night before Christmas at the halfway mark. So I bought the family tickets to go see them. And, um, you know, Buddy came out in his usual fashion halfway through and did his rendition of a night before christmas and that was that was kind of a special night that was uh that was a a fond memory um of him because you know how he he always used to uh give his uh uh spin on things and uh he did a wonderful job reading that but that was just i i don't know why that popped into my mind but imagine we're running into christmas this year my goodness or the holidays and and then you know now today we you know, fell, fell ahead. So now it's going to be dark out at night. Oh my goodness. So we got to get through the winter months, I guess, and look forward to spring. In any event, my name is attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips here on WPRO. Heartbreak at 957 and we'll be back. For the real story behind some of wrestling's biggest moments, it's something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard and Conrad Thompson too. 1995 when WCW announces they're going to be live and head to head with Monday Night Raw, feels like this would have been something Vince would have kind of laughed off. No, we did not like them moving to Monday nights. There were a lot of hotels. They all carried CNN, TBS, and TNT. Vince was convinced that Ted Turner had deviously done this deal to get in the hotels and keep us out something to wrestle wherever you listen
in just a minute. This is attorney Steve Levesque, host of Legal Tips on WPRO. And we're answering your questions, of course, giving out some advice on this beautiful day. Um, beautiful Sunday. And the number here is 401-438-9776. And I had an interesting tax question come through for me. And um, I, my background, I went to URI, graduated in 92. Jeez, imagine that. With a um, Bachelor of Science in Accounting. And, you know, I use that accounting degree almost every day when I'm at work. And so tax question came through. And um, a couple came in and saw me. And they said, you know, we were in the process of helping out our daughter. She had a credit card debt of about, you know, $40,000. And I guess dad kind of reached out to all the creditors and said, look, I'm willing to try to settle this debt and went through them one by one in an effort and paid them off. Well, daughter files her tax return as usual, and she gets a notice from the IRS. And the notice says, by the way, you have underreported income. And now you owe us money for that underreported income. So they, they don't have an accountant or a CPA. And so they contacted me and said, you know, Stephen, what is this? What, what, we don't understand if we settled this debt, how come it's still haunting her? And, you know, I thought her credit was going to get better. And the reality is if you settle a debt and a creditor takes less than what they're owed, the balance of that debt. So let's say somebody's owed $15,000 and they take 10. That means that $5,000 was forgiven, but it counts as income to you. And the creditor takes a deduction on their tax return as a forgiveness of debt. Now that means you then have to take that $5,000, report it as additional income and pay taxes on it, just like it was anything else. So you can understand if you have $100,000 of debt or $50,000 of debt and 20,000 gets written off you you now you may owe the IRS 5,000 by the way you're going to owe the state of Rhode Island money too or whatever state you're in whether it's Massachusetts or Connecticut this is the law and so you know they didn't understand that and had they known that because her income right now as a waitress was so small that had they known that, that probably they would have advised her to, you know, go maybe look at the bankruptcy option as a personal bankruptcy to see if that would have been an option to discharge the debt. Because when you go through that process, the debt that's released is non-taxable and that's, that's law as well. So sometimes if you want to help somebody out, you can help them out by helping them through the right legal process, although they did this. And now they were expecting her credit to come back fairly quickly. But what happens is it shows up as a charge off on her credit now. And that's a negative ding. And it's going to take her a very long time to build her credit. Whereas if she went through the other process, the bankruptcy process, it might not have. It would only show up as a bankruptcy. And within a year, her credit would be back to 
probably over 650. And sometimes people are over 700, if you're, especially if you have W-2 income. So it's just an interesting question. Another question came through the office. This one had to do with probate. I do a lot of probate work. I do probate litigation. I'm up in, I was up in the Supreme Court a couple of weeks ago arguing over a probate case. And so, yes, so probate, that's why I always talk about probate avoidance. So in that probate case, not only was it in probate court in the city where we filed it, but then it went up to the Supreme Court. So you can imagine all the work that goes into that. But if everybody's in agreement, probate can move pretty smoothly and you can get it done fairly quickly. And so, and I say quickly, I mean six to nine months. I mean, that's unfortunately. So people say, well, why six months? Why does it have to be six months? Well, probate has to be open for six months because creditors or people who the decedent owed money to have a right to come forward within that six-month period, file a claim with the probate court, and get paid whatever they're owed. Now, again, that could be the division of taxation. That could be Medicaid. That could be a credit card. Could be a large medical bill with Rhode Island Hospital, a lifespan. So all of those things could be there. And so that's why probate has to stay open for six months. And that's a law. So that's a statutory law. And who set that time frame? Who knows? Somebody at some point said six months is long enough for somebody to come forward. And if they don't come forward in that time, then they don't get paid and you can close the estate. So just so you understand what probate is there for. Probate is there for the administration of an estate. And what does administration mean? It means the uh, gathering of gathering of assets, pooling the assets, distributing the assets, paying claims, and then eventually getting permission to close the estate. And so in any event, probate, you know, avoidance or probate techniques to try to avoid probate are always positive. Now, of course, if you're dealing with any of these issues that we've talked about today, you can always reach out to me at my office at 401-490-4900, 401-490-4900. Um, we're there every week, uh, myself, Jacqueline, my paralegal, Waleski, uh, we're there to help you and we're there to you know help guide you. And of course, if you need to hire me, I'm there for you to meet with and talk to and determine if not only are we a right fit, but can I get the resolution that you're looking for? And also, can we give you some goals that we can shoot for? Now, again, you can always find me online at spllaw.com, spllaw.com. And you can uh, shoot me a message or there's a chat box there as well. Again, this is attorney Steve Levake, your host of Legal Tips on WPRO. I want to say a thousand thanks to my friends at Cumulus. They are just the best. Uh, they, Tiffany, thank you so much for helping this week. Doug, Randy, thank you so much. You guys are the best. I'll tell you, this is just the greatest station in the world. 
and they have the greatest people working for them. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title Crisis aired March 3rd, 2004. Director Kenneth Biller. He was a weird guy. He was talented and I liked him, but he was he was a weird fella. The production loved him. The cast, mm, Ken, if you're out there, uh, I'm sure we'd get along. A lot of these people, I don't want to call them pawns, but in a TV production, even directors are a lot of times pawns. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.